0: chapter 2 verse 17 to 3 verse 4 you have wearied the Lord with your words how have we wearied him you ask by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them or where is the God of justice I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come says the Lord Almighty But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years."
1: The second reading is from Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 24, and it can be found on page 836. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to him to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence and violent people have have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the laws prophesying until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who, has, who was to come. Whoever has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds." Woe to unrepentant towns. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed. Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in cloth and ashes, but I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than than for you, and you, Capernaum, will, will you be lifted into the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on that day of judgment than for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God.
2: Thanks, Donna. I want to begin tonight by asking you who your heroes of faith are. So who are the men and women in your Christian life who have inspired you, shaped you, encouraged you in your faith? If I think about that question, there are so many. I want to just highlight three tonight. Uh, The first is a a man called Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon is my hero of preaching. Uh, He preached in the same church in Cambridge, Holy Trinity, Cambridge, for 54 years in the same church. And that sounds amazing. What you've got to realise is for the first 30 of those years, the church wardens locked the doors because he hated the word of God being preached. And despite the opposition, despite all the objections, Charleston was so persuaded the word of God was powerful, he kept on preaching the word of God. Extraordinary preacher. Not just a preacher, a prayer. In his attic, he had a prayer desk, and he would kneel at this prayer desk and pray these bold big prayers, because he says, God says to ask, to seek, and to knock. So I'm asking, I'm seeking, and I'm knocking. He was an incredible pastor. He was once described as perhaps the most influential minister in the Church of England. So I love Charles Simeon, great man of God, and yet, and yet, Simeon suffered these periods of intense loneliness, deep lows, periods of doubt and questioning and struggling, and that's okay. Charles Spurgeon was named the Prince of Preachers, He started preaching at age 16 by the age of 20. He would command thousands. He would pace around the platform, acting out Bible stories. Uh, He once said he was fed up with polite English preachers. He really really believed that when the word word of God went out, it would transform souls. He was an incredible prayer. He said, we're talking to the Lord so let your words be few, but your heart be fervent. He really believed that the prayer meeting of the church was the, the grace o of the church, the, the spiritual health could be defined by the church prayer meeting. He was so well-loved at his funeral in 1892, a hundred thousand people turned out to farewell him. An incredible man of God. And yet, Spurgeon suffered deep discouragement, deep doubts, And deep depression. And that's okay, isn't it? Uh, John Stott was the the minister of All Souls Langham Place in London for 60 years. Incredible preacher. He really believed the Word of God would, would not just impact your mind, but your heart. He preached expecting the Spirit to move. Incredible prayer, incredible pastor. One of his assistants said he was marked by humility. When you met him after church, it felt like you were the centre of his attention. And God used John Stott mightily to, to impact thousands of people. And yet, John Stott struggled, questioned, and doubted his faith. Read his biography, he talks about, Tears pouring down his cheek because the, the pressure of life and ministry was just too much for him. And I love that. I love that God raises up the, these great, mighty spiritual giants, and yet many of them doubted and questioned and struggled, and that's okay. Now, John the Baptist, who we're going to study tonight, was the first faithful, fearless follower of Jesus. He's that crazy dude who lived in the wilderness and ate locust and honey and wore camel hair. He's this bold, passionate, gutsy man of God. And yet when you meet him tonight, he struggles. And that's okay. So Matthew 11 verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, so he's just gathered his disciples, and he looked to the crowd and says, this crowd, they're not significant and successful. They are harassed and helpless. They are broken and burdened, and they need to hear about the love of God. And Jesus just sent out his 12 disciples. He's commissioned them to be courageous for Jesus. Look at verse 2. Uh, when John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah... So that's the setting of Matthew chapter 11. John is in jail. He's in prison for his faith. And if you know the story, the king of the time is a king called King Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas decides one day he doesn't love his wife anymore. He's going to leave his wife because he's fallen in love with his brother's wife. And so he divorces his wife and marries his brother's wife, Herodias. And John the Baptist, this bold man of God, stands up and rebukes Herod and says, you've been selfish, you've been immoral, and for that he's he's chucked into jail. So that's the scenario. John is in prison. He's pondering and processing. And Matthew 11 divides into three neat sections. They all start with a question. They all quote an Old Testament. And they end with a proverbial saying, or wisdom saying. And the first section, verses 2 to 6, is all about doubt. Doubt. It's okay to have moments of doubt. I'm not talking about unbelief. Unbelief is when you deliberately deny God. Unbelief is when you say, I don't believe anymore. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Doubt is when your circumstances and your faith don't seem to match up. A Doubt is when you say, I believe in God, I believe that God is good, and I believe that God is powerful, I believe that God provides and protects and is present with me, and you know all that stuff about God, and you look at your life, you say, it doesn't quite match right now. And you struggle, and you question, and you doubt, and that's okay. That's what John the Baptist is doing here. Verse 3. He's in prison and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, Jesus, are you really the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus, are you really God's chosen Messiah? Or is someone else coming in the future? It's a really strange question. Because John the Baptist is the one who jumped in his womb when he came face to face with the Messiah. John the Baptist is the one who said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is the one who said, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist is the one who was there at the baptism of Jesus and saw the dove descend on Jesus and and heard the voice say, this is my son. And so John the Baptist knows up here, that Jesus is the Messiah. But now he's in prison. And life hasn't turned out quite as he expected it to turn out. And he's discouraged and he's perplexed and he's confused and he's pondering and he's questioning and he's doubting. He's saying, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Why isn't Jesus doing what he said he would do? Because Isaiah tells us when the Messiah comes, he will open prison doors and he'll set captives free and and John's in jail in prison, so maybe Jesus is not the Messiah after all. Do you get it? He's struggling and that's okay. Maybe he's disappointed he's dedicated his whole life to Tarlas. He's serving Jesus, making sacrifices, counting the cost, giving up comforts, and now here he is lying on a dirty floor all alone waiting his death. Is Jesus really the Messiah? Let me ask you, does it it shock you that someone as great as John the Baptist could doubt? Sometimes, as a pastor, I I tell people I'm in a season of doubt. And you kind of look at their face and the, the jaw drops because, hey, pastors are supposed to have it all together. We're not supposed to question or struggle, are we? When life sucks, you just smile and just suck it up, do you? It's okay to question, it's okay to doubt. When you're disappointed with God, when your life hasn't turned out the way expected to, when, when what you know about God from the Scripture doesn't match up with your life right now, it's okay. Someone said, "Doubt is not so much dividing line that separates people into two different camps. Doubt is a razor's edge that runs through every human soul." So here's an encouragement for you: Most spiritual giants suffered moments of deep doubt. Remember Moses? Moses saying, I can't do this, God. Send somebody else. Or Elijah, who just called down far from heaven, and then he's chased by Jezebel. He says, I want to die. Or Jeremiah saying, I don't want to preach anymore. I want to quit, God. I can't do this. Let's ponder that. Why do we question? Why do we struggle? Why do we doubt with God? I do think it's about life circumstances. When life is hard and when you're asking God, why is this happening to me? God, you're supposed to be good and you're supposed to be sovereign, but my beliefs don't match that right now. You know, when you're grieving, when you feel alone, when you've got bad news, when the door slammed in your face and you, you read about God's protection and God's promises and God's power and God's presence, and you say, I know that's true and I wish I felt it. Lord, why aren't you answering my prayers right now? And to make it worse, you look around at other Christians and nothing bad seems to happen to them. What well, else causes doubt? Wrong belief. Wrong understanding of God. And so John the Baptist knew Isaiah 35, the Messiah would open the prison doors and set the captives free, but he hasn't understood that he's not talking about physical release from captivity, but spiritual relief. I meet so many people who are claimed to be disappointed with God, but the God they're disappointed with is not the God of the Bible. If you're a Christian, God never promised you a life of no pain and no suffering and no hardships. That's why in this church we don't sing those stupid songs like, in his presence your problems disappear, because it's not true. If you've got a wrong understanding of God, then you'll start to doubt the God that doesn't really exist. We doubt because of difficult circumstances. We doubt because of wrong beliefs. We doubt because of the whispers of Satan. Satan loves to whisper, God is not good. You're not good enough for God. God doesn't really love you. So what do you do with these doubts? I think John did the right thing. He shared it with his disciples and sent his disciples to find out answers. And the answer comes back in verse 4. Look at it with me. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. So go and tell John all the evidence, all the facts about me, all the indisputable concrete evidence that he's going to base his faith on. Remember, as I have said, when, when the Messiah comes, the, the blind will receive sight, verse 5 will tick, because Jesus healed a blind man. Only Jesus ever did that. When the Messiah comes, the lame will walk, verse 5, well, tick, because he's just healed a paralytic. When the Messiah comes, verse 5, those who have leprosy are cleansed, well, tick, because he's just touched a leper and healed him. The deaf will hear, the dead are raised, tick, because Jairus's daughter has been raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor, tick. The harassed and helpless have heard the gospel. But what's fascinating about verse 5 is that Jesus misses out one phrase of Isaiah. He misses out that phrase that the, the, the captives will be set free, the, the, the prisoners will be opened. And I think he's doing that because he's saying to John, it's okay to be in jail. I'm not talking about physical release from captivity. I'm talking about spiritual release. And that hasn't happened yet because the cross hasn't happened yet. He's saying to John, what, what more evidence do you need? Verse 6 Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. Blessed, happy, finding favour are the people who, in their doubts, in their confusion, in their struggles, in their questions, they keep believing, they don't stumble, they don't stop, and they don't fall. So here's the good news about doubt doubt actually draws you closer to God. It really does. In those seasons of life where there's one particular aspect of God's character that you're really struggling with, it might be his presence, his provision, his protection. In those seasons, when you press into God, and when you run to God and say, I'm not feeling your power at this moment, when you press into that, you actually begin to enjoy him and experience him in ways that you may never have before. So don't let God rob you of taking deeper into him by not Confessing your doubts. Don't pretend that you're not doubting. It's okay. God knows that you're doubting, so why try and fake it? Press into it. Trust him. Don't stumble. Take God at his word. Remind yourself of who Jesus really is. Stop stressing about what you don't know about God and focus on what you do know about God. God. Uh, You know that he's loving and kind and gracious. You know that Jesus came to live and to die and to, to save you from your sins. You know you're fully forgiven. You know the tomb was empty. Never doubt that. You have eternal life. So stand on those truths. Take God at his word. Preach the gospel to yourself. God does know your circumstances right now. You might not like his plan. You might not like the journey. But God's got you. So number one, doubt. See number two, the word is gutsy. Great word, gutsy. It means to be bold, to be courageous, to be passionate. Say to yourself, it's good to be gutsy for God. It's good to be gutsy for God. Do you ever imagine what uh, people might say about you at your funeral? What, what kind of words would you want People to use about you at your own funeral. I'd love people to say about me, oh, Paul was kind or faithful or forgiving or humble, those kind of words. But my new word I've discovered this week is the word gutsy. I'd love people to say Paul was gutsy for God. He was was courageous, he was bold, he was passionate for Jesus. Because that's the word that Jesus uses to describe John the Baptist. He's gutsy for God. Verses 7 to 15 is like a eulogy for John. This is who John is. Read it with me. Verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. This is what John is like. Here's the question. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? What what kind of man were you expecting in John the Baptist? A reed swayed by the wind. Did you expect John to be useless and weak and tossed around by every latest fad and listening to all the garbage of this world. and That's not John. John was solid and strong and fearless and firm. He was gutsy. He wasn't weak and he wasn't worldly. Verse 8, if not, what did you go out to see? What kind of man were you expecting? A man dressed in fine clothes, a man who had the latest fashion and latest sunglasses and latest water bottle, a man who fitted in with the world and looked no different from the world? No. Verse 8, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces, not giving up things for God. That is John the Baptist. He, He chose not to fit in with the world. He chose to walk away from wealth and prosperity and success and being known. He chose to go and just serve God wholeheartedly. He didn't fit in. He stood out. He was different. Uh, Spurgeon has a great illustration of running down a hill. I don't know if you've ever been running down a hill and the incline of the hill is much steeper than you thought and as you start running, you can't stop yourself running because the momentum takes over. Spurgeon says this, you Christians ought to watch out against the beginning of worldly conformity. I believe the growth of worldliness is like strife. Once you begin, there's no knowing where you will stop. I sometimes get this question put to me concerning certain wealth or worldly amusements. Mr. Spurgeon, may I do so and so? And I'm sorry whenever anyone asks me that question. If a person's conscience lets him say, well, I can go to A... He'll very soon go to B, and then C, D, E, and all through the letter of the alphabet. He just won't stop. Beware of the beginning of worldliness and of wealth. So, so John is gutsy because he's not worldly. He refuses to succumb to the wealth of this world. And he's gutsy because he's a great man of God. Verse 9, then, what did you go out to see? What kind of man were you expecting? A prophet? Yes, he is a prophet. Verse 9, I tell you, but, but he's more than a prophet because he's a, he's a fulfiller of prophecy. Because he is the one who fulfilled that prophecy of Malachi, verse 10, who said, I will send my messenger ahead of you. So Sir so John, he says, is an incredibly gifted man of God. Come down to verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John... So John is like the last of the prophets. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Now stick with me for just 30 seconds. If you get confused, just tune in again in a minute's time. So so Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet. And Malachi predicted that before the Messiah came, Elijah would come. But Elijah had died many years ago. Actually, just taken to heaven, actually. And then when John the Baptist comes in John chapter 1, uh, they say, are you Elijah? And John says, of course I'm not Elijah. But then you read in Matthew 11 that Jesus says, no, John the Baptist is Elijah. So it's confusing. Is he Elijah or is he not Elijah? And the answer comes in Luke chapter 1, because when John the Baptist is in the womb, an angel comes and tells his parents that, that John the Baptist is going to come, listen, in the, in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. That's who John the Baptist is, this great man who comes in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. He was bold, he was courageous, he expected and attempted great things for God. Tune back in again, John was an extraordinary man. Verse 11 says, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. No one greater, that's a bold claim, isn't it? Greater than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses... David greater than anyone. I was thinking this week, how do you define greatness? What defines a great man or great woman? We tend to define greatness by what? By education, achievements, wealth, status, success. John the Baptist had had none of those. None of them. And yet he's the greatest man who ever lived. So why is he so great? He's so great because he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He's so great because he he faithfully and fearlessly proclaimed the gospel to people. He's so great because he refused to conform with the world. He's so great because he would not bow down to culture. He wasn't popular. He faced verbal abuse from religious people. That's verse 12, all that violent stuff. But he kept on pointing people to Christ. Look at Jesus, not look at me. It's a great word, gutsy, isn't it? Well, look again at verse 11. It's an extraordinary verse. Underline verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, look at the last half. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. That is mind-blowing. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is actually greater than the greatest man who lived to this point. So who is least in the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is, is you and me. If we, in if we believe in Jesus, God says that you are greater than the greatest man who ever lived. How does that work? We may not preach to thousands. We may not go and live in the wilderness. But remember that John pointed to Christ. We get to experience Christ. John announced the Messiah was coming. We get to live as someone for whom the Messiah has already come. John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We get to live as people who who experience full forgiveness, full cleansing. If you believe in Jesus, you are greater than John the Baptist. We have the Spirit of God, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. Have you thought about this? We have the potential to reach so many more people with the gospel of Christ than John the Baptist ever did. It's incredible, isn't it? Like John the Baptist, let, let, let's be bold, courageous, not concerned about what people think about us, not succumbing to the ways of this world, but being, not being, being swayed by, by latest fads and latest faiths. Let's be radical. Let's be full-on for Jesus. You may be mocked. You may face opposition You may even go to jail like millions of Christians around the world right now. But please be gutsy for God. Maybe the Spirit's talking to you right now, which is why verse 15 says, whoever has ears, let them hear. So John doubted, and that's okay. John was gutsy for God. Lastly, and more briefly, John was realistic. Be realistic about people's response to Jesus. And not everyone is going to love it when you tell them that God loves them. Not everyone's going to love it when you tell them that Jesus died for them. Not everyone's going to love it uh, when you live a different lifestyle because of Jesus. When, when you shine light into dark, broken people, not everyone's going to like it. Verse 16, here's the question. To what can I compare this generation? That's the question. What, what are people of this world like? Are they educated? Are they advanced? Are they wise? Are they empowered? A recent survey was done as to how you would describe millennials. So apologies for any millennials here tonight. And here's the words used. Millennials are fearless and fabulous and cool and empowered. But the top two words to describe millennials were this. Entitled and self-centered entitled and self-centered and nothing has changed look at verse 16 uh, Jesus describes his generation they're, they're like children the word there is like they're like spoiled brats entitled self-centered spoiled brats sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others we played the pipe for you but you didn't dance we sang the dirge you didn't mourn And just so you understand verse 17, kids at that time in the marketplace, they they played two different games. One was called weddings and one was called funerals. They were the two games they played in the marketplace. And so so one child would say, hey, let's all play weddings. And so they would play the pipes, then would dance and celebrate. And then one sport that would say, I don't want to play weddings, I want to play funerals. And so they stopped playing weddings and played funerals. And all the kids would just pretend to mourn and do a dirge. And then one sport would say, I'm fed up with playing funerals, I want to play weddings. And that's what Jesus is saying here, that, that this generation, they are so fickle, they're so self-centred, they only think about themselves all the time, and they're just entitled. And so verse 18, John comes and he doesn't eat or drink, and they say he has a demon. We don't like John because he's too harsh, too conservative, too legalistic. We don't want a funeral, we want a wedding. Then Jesus comes verse 19 they didn't like him either because he comes eating and drinking and they accuse him of being gluttonous and a drunkard and you just can't win. But verse 19 wisdom is proved right by Hadith that's the proverb. Look what John did, he led thousands to repentance, he prepared the way for the Messiah. Look what Jesus did, he lavished people with love, he died for the sins of the world. This is the crazy thing about the Christian gospel. You can present the most beautiful, gracious, loving, caring gospel presentation and just tell people that God loves them to death and they can have peace and they can have pardon, they have forgiveness, they can have joy, they can have hope. And people in our world will say, I don't like that, don't want to hear that, doesn't fit into my worldview, shut up. And so you try a different angle. You say, well, let me tell you about hell, shall I? Hell, fire and brimstone. And they say, I don't like that either. And so what do you do when people don't like a message of love and grace and kindness? And what do you do when people don't like a message of hell? Well, let's stop speaking, shall we? Let's just water down the gospel and tell people what they want to hear. No. You fearlessly, boldly, graciously, lovingly keep on talking about Jesus. We live in a world that is fickle, entitled and self-centred. But the problem is, those words often describe us as well. And often we sit here in church and God is trying to teach us something and that little children are saying, God, I don't want to hear this, God, I don't like this. And if we just allow God to actually lovingly, caringly shape us and, and in influence and if you find verses 16 to 19 confronting Jesus and both powers in verses 20 to 24, we're finished with this. Jesus began to denounce, to condemn all the towns, all the places where most of his miracles had been performed because they refused to repent. They had seen Jesus' power, they'd seen his miracles, his might, but they refused to believe he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Capernaum. These, these cities, and so you grasp this, these are the cities where, where Jesus raised the dead, fed the 5,000, healed the paralytic, drove out demons. They, they'd seen the miraculous powers of Jesus, but they refused to believe. And Jesus says, woe to you. Woe is a terrible word, isn't it? But I think woe is a great word for Sydney, Woe to you, Sydney. You have all the access to the gospel than any other generation. Woe to you, Sydney. You've got a church on every second corner. You've got Bibles coming out of your ears. You've got Bibles on your phone and on your iPads, and on your computers. Woe to you, Sydney, where you can go anywhere to hear about Jesus. It's not that you can't hear about Jesus, it's that you don't want to. You say, I don't like this. And it's fascinating, the gospel is going out all over the world. There's revival in Africa, there's revival in jails, but in Sydney, people just don't want to hear. Don't be surprised, we're sad but not surprised. So what do we do? We're gutsy for God, aren't we? We believe that God loves people, so we keep on graciously, lovingly, kindly Sharing the love of Christ. I don't know who your heroes of faith are. I love that my heroes often doubted, and that was okay, because I often doubt. I believe, but there's times of struggle. I love that my heroes were gutsy for God. They weren't weak, they weren't world, worldly. They were just great, bold, powerful men of God. And they're realistic. Not everyone's going to like it, and that's okay. So let me pray. I'm going to pray a prayer that Charles Simeon wrote in 1850. Blessed Lord, the only living and true God, we live by you, our whole dependence is upon you for all the good that we either have or hope for. We now desire to bless your name for all those mercies which in so large a measure you have so generously given to us. How sweet and wonderful it is to recount all the instances of your patience with us, all your blessings to us. What shall we render to you, Lord, for all your benefits? Let not our hearts be stingy towards you. Enlarge our hearts. Fill them with more love, more thankfulness. To you, the gracious giver of all good things. And all God's people says, Amen.